Welcome back to the Maritime History Podcast, where today we have episode 22, Rise of the Phoenicians. Hopefully you've caught up through our last episode, where we looked at the balkanization of the Near East in the decades that followed the Bronze Age collapse. We discussed there how the Phoenician cities fit into that process, and how the result by 1100 to 1050 BCE was that the Phoenician cities had withstood the changes and had been sandwiched between the Neo-Hittite kingdoms to their north and the shaken-up area to the south, where the remnants of the Sea Peoples had taken up residence, along with the Hebrew tribes and others. All of that is merely the stage upon which the events of the early Iron Age began to play out. Today, I'd like to start getting into a bit more detail about the era's maritime history. And no people group from this era is more synonymous with sailing and maritime matters than are the Phoenicians. So let's now turn the focus in their direction and see if we can't get to know them just a little better. Geographically speaking, it's fairly apparent why they became the maritime culture that the ancients regarded them to be, and that we still remember them as today. The sandwich effect that I mentioned a moment ago left them with just a narrow strip of land within which the Phoenician cultural bases stood, the major cities there being Byblos, Tyre, and Sidon, but those are the big names, there were certainly others. Herodotus mentions these cities repeatedly, and he also connects the name Syria with the Phoenicians. Part of the area they occupied later came to be called Syria, the other part Lebanon. If you look at a map to see the area, you'll notice immediately that it is narrow, and that the long vertical border to the east butts up against mountains and a desert. It's the opposite border that's important to us, though the western border where the Phoenician port cities were dotted along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. As we discussed a bit last time, the major Phoenician cities had been around for thousands of years before 1100 BCE, which is kind of a mind-boggling thing to think about deeply. Byblos is seen by many as one of the oldest continuously occupied cities on Earth, and Sidon also seems to have had prehistoric roots. In modern common reference to Phoenicia, you often hear the names Tyre and Sidon in conjunction, almost to the point that it seems to be a single unit formed of two different cities. They did become closely related after Tyre grew so powerful that it practically controlled Sidon, but initially they were just two power centers among several that are considered to have been Phoenician. The rise of Tyre will be a topic that we consider more closely in today's episode. Sidon will factor in a little bit later, but it never rose to the level of prominence that Tyre rose to. Now, though, as we move into the story of the Phoenician people that occupy the history books, I did want to make it clear that I will refer to the Phoenicians on many occasions by that overarching name that describes their culture. However, they were really similar to the Mycenaeans in terms of their social, societal, and cultural structure. We'd be on pretty firm ground to call Phoenicia a group of city-states 
held together by a common culture, religion, and relative location. Beyond those major commonalities, the Phoenicians didn't view themselves as a cohesive political unit. No, there was in fact a good measure of competition between and among the various cities. Each city effectively operated as a sovereign state. The term city-state I guess will work from here on out. Each city or region was ruled by a local king or leader. So in a sense, it's similar to the way in which the Greek city-states existed, but it's also fair to say that the Greek cities did have a bit more animosity between them at times than did the Phoenicians. The bottom line here is that geography, timing, and other factors all added up to a Phoenician culture that was at once a loose group of autonomous city-states, while simultaneously being a region that operated in a similar maritime merchant fashion on the water. Braudel tells us that each Phoenician port city, quote, saw itself as an autonomous world, but that having sighted themselves on easily defended headlands or islands, they turned their backs on their mountainous hinterland and faced the sea. Historian Will Durant echoes that view by saying that, quote, the mountains compelled them to live on the water. Their closest relationship may even have been on the water, rather than on land. While the cities were autonomous then, I think that part of the reason Western academia has lumped the Phoenician city-states together is that for a long time their place in the Western view of history came by way of the Greek historians, who were themselves far removed from the relevant time and place. Now, I do realize that I and all of us today are even further removed in both aspects there. But I hope that I can make an effort to present the Phoenicians in the terms in which they thought about themselves. That includes an effort to discern the reasons why the Greeks painted them in the light that they did. So, here goes nothing. The most revealing point in this aside is that the term by which we call these maritime traders... The word Phoenician is itself a Greek invention. We know that the various Phoenician cities, though semi-autonomous, recognized that they shared an ethnic identity as Canaanites. So where exactly did the term Phoenician come from then? That brings us to another reason why the Phoenicians stick out in modern memory. That is, the color purple. And no, not the novel or the film the actual hue purple, and hue spelled H-U-E, not H-U-G-H like the guy's name. Alright, I give up. You know what I mean. Moving on, I'm sure this topic will come up again in our season 2 episodes, but what my young mind absorbed about the Phoenicians is what I would imagine that many modern minds have also absorbed if the school textbooks are where the study halted. I remember being told that the Phoenicians were important because they invented the alphabet that later made its way to Greece and beyond. Also because they took the dye of the sea creature that lived in the Murex shell and used it to create the luxury fabrics of ancient times. Garments and cloth dyed a deep purple color. The Greek word for this color was phoenix, 
and as the Greeks equated these Levantine merchants with their purple dye, in the Greek mind, they became the Phoenikes. Obviously, this term in the English became Phoenicians. And as you can see, the very name that we call these people by today tells us more about how the Greeks viewed them than it does about how they viewed themselves, or how the ancient world as a whole viewed them. That's, I think, okay. One term or another had to win out in the end. That's just reality. But that shouldn't discourage us from attempting to get a deeper understanding of the role they played during the height of their influence. In our bid here to get that deeper understanding, a good jumping-off point concerns the myths around the origins of Tyre. And as is the case with most ancient myths, it all depends on who you ask. Herodotus has his version, of course, telling us that Tyre was founded 2,300 years before he visited the city himself. That would put it around 2750 BCE. Everybody has their personal opinion about the usefulness of Herodotus as source material. So another version of this myth was told by a much more obscure ancient writer, a Hellenized Egyptian named Nonus of Panopolis. We know next to nothing about this man or his life, other than that he lived and wrote during the late 4th century CE, and that his main legacy to us today is the Dionysiaca, a 48-book epic that concerns the life of Dionysus, his mythical expedition to India, and his triumphant return to the West. This epic poem is actually the longest surviving poem from antiquity. At 48 books, it's as long as the Iliad and the Odyssey combined. And even then, it appears to be incomplete in its remaining form, so who knows how much longer he was going to keep writing. Nonus frames his myth of Tyre's founding within the journey of Dionysus. In that story, Dionysus makes a stopover in Tyre to admire the city's beauty and to pay homage to a Greek hero who had been born in that Phoenician city. To make a long story short, Dionysus runs into the god Heracles, who was a Hellenized version of the Tyrian god Melkart, and Dionysus asks him this question. What god built this city in the form of a continent and the image of an island? who mingled island with mainland and bound them together with Mother Sea. To again make the responding long story short, Heracles tells Dionysus the myth of the Ambrosian stones that floated freely on the Mediterranean, and how one day the god Melkart imparted the land-bound Tyrian ancestors with the knowledge to be able to build the first ship. Nanus calls this first ship the Chariot of the Sea. The newly minted mariners sailed this first ship to the Ambrosian Stones, sacrificed its divine eagle to Zeus, and thereby broke the spell over the stones and anchored them to the seabed in the location where they were at that point, the location where the city Tyre is today and was back then. Tyre was originally built on an island just off the Lebanese shore, which made it a perfect location for a future port city. 
For me here, it's significant to see that the Tyrians themselves viewed their god, the one who founded their city, as the same being who imparted them with the knowledge needed to construct the first ship. As far as that goes, and in order to draw any conclusions about the Phoenician self-image, we unfortunately do have to assume that the myth written down by Nonus retains some form of the myth that was cooked up by the Phoenicians themselves. For being the progenitors of the first wide-scale phonetic alphabet, the Phoenicians didn't write a lot about themselves. We have some letters from Phoenician cities among the Amarna letters, but they date to an earlier period, and they don't really tell us a lot about the culture, which is unfortunate. No, as will be a recurring theme in our look at Phoenicia and the exploits of its people, the surrounding cultures wrote down what they thought about their seafaring neighbors, but the Phoenicians set down very little about themselves. So, now that we've gotten the Phoenician mythos in at the outset, let's see what some later Greek historians had to say about Phoenician accomplishments, and then we'll zoom in to see why Tyre became powerful and how things progressed from there. It's a bit ironic that the Phoenicians are seen as the impetus for the eventual widespread adoption of writing, but that they didn't place any emphasis on autobiographical writing. Now, although I'd love to expound on the importance of the Phoenician contribution to the existence of written language, this isn't really the right podcast for that examination. I think it's enough to say that a main center of the phonetic alphabet's development was Byblos, spelled B-Y-B-L-O-S, and that the Greek word for book was also Byblos, spelled B-I-B-L-O-S. Something I can speak to in more depth, though, is the Phoenician contribution to navigation. The historian Strabo, in his geography, mentions the Phoenicians right off the bat in connection with the art of navigation by the constellations, an art that unlocked the ability to navigate on the open sea. He remarks that until after the time of Homer, the Greeks navigated only by the constellation Ursa Major, the Great Bear, as it is a useful indication of true north. Strabo does confess, however, that it was the Phoenicians themselves who introduced the Greeks to navigation by Ursa Minor, or the Little Bear. This constellation is significant because it contains the star Polaris, or the North Star. It's the star that is the cornerstone of celestial navigation, and has been ever since the Phoenicians popularized its usefulness. Until the Latin name Ursa Minor was adopted to refer to this constellation, the ancients acknowledged the Phoenician contribution by calling the constellation Phoenice, or Ursa Phoenicia. Even the Greeks acknowledged the Phoenician achievement, and it's commemorated in this stanza from the Phenomena, which was written by the Greek poet Aratus. He wrote, quote, now, the one men call by name Kynosura, and the other Helice, Ursa Minor and Ursa Major. It is by Helice that the Achaeans on the sea divine which way to steer their ships. But in the other, Ursa Minor, 
the Phoenicians put their trust when they crossed the sea. But Helis appearing large at earliest night is bright and easy to mark. But the other is small, yet better for sailors. For in a smaller orbit wheel all her stars. By her guidance, then, the men of Sidon steer the straightest course. Even Pliny, in his natural history, acknowledges the Greek debt to the Phoenicians, saying simply, We are indebted to the Phoenicians for the first observation of the stars in navigation. Almost everyone agrees, then, that they were the first great navigators of the ancient world, an ability that was directly connected with the reputation they assumed amongst their contemporaries, but also amongst the later Greek and Roman chroniclers of history. Among their contemporaries and their neighbors, the Phoenicians were also viewed as industrious maritime merchants, a reputation that did indeed carry down through to our day today. As we mentioned earlier, their industry and their maritime mindedness were both products of their geographic location and their relative lack of resources because of their mountainous surroundings. The unfortunate reality of the historical and archaeological record is that we won't be able to be as detailed with the Phoenicians as we've had the luxury to be with some of the other cultures that we've covered to date. Be that as it may, we do have some detail regarding the rise of Tyre, and the king who is generally credited with doing much to aid that rise, a king named Hiram I. Just to reiterate here, Byblos and Sidon were the greater Phoenician cities prior to the late Bronze Age collapse, though, of course, the inhabitants of those cities aren't called Phoenicians in reference to those earlier periods. They survived the collapse and maintained their strength for a while. But in time, the smaller, weaker city of Tyre began to flourish, thanks to the leadership of two kings, Abibal and his son Hiram. Much of what we know regarding Hiram survives in the annals of the Hebrew kings. A rough date for the ascension of Hiram and what we'll now discuss is right around 1000 BCE, give or take a few decades. It was in this period that the Jewish kingdom also came into its own, with the unification of Judah and Israel into one kingdom under a central figure of Jewish history, King David. Being that the Jewish kingdom and the Phoenician port cities were essentially neighbors in the Levant, it would appear that both parties were amenable to an alliance. By pursuing alliance with King David, Hiram proves to be a strategically-minded king, as we're going to flesh out here. And wouldn't you know it, we can't mention Hiram's trade with David without a reference to the ever-present Cedars of Lebanon. In the historic-sounding King James translation, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 11 says, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons, and they built David a house. This was mere groundwork for Hiram, because when David died and was succeeded by his son Solomon, Hiram continued to seek that alliance. Strategically, the alliance would make sense for Tyre. It was a city on the coast 
with not very many natural resources. It had open access to the Mediterranean, but any outlet eastward was closed to them without the cooperation of an inland power, a power like the Hebrews had become by Solomon's ascension around the year 960 BCE. The main source for what survives regarding this alliance between Hiram and Solomon in Tyre and Jerusalem is Josephus, particularly his Antiquities of the Jews. After he expounds on the wisdom and prosperity of King Solomon, which includes the infamous Cut the Baby in Two story, Josephus then tells us that Hiram and Solomon struck up a deal. King David had intended to build a temple in Jerusalem, but according to Solomon, his numerous wars and expeditions had prevented that from ever materializing in David's lifetime. Solomon then wished to fulfill his father's intentions, and he views Hiram's famous cedar wood supply as a perfect source of building material for that temple. Solomon then writes to Hiram, saying, quote, I desire thee to send some of thy subjects with mine to Mount Lebanon to cut down timber, for the Sidonians are more skillful than our people in cutting of wood. As for wages to the hewers of wood, I will pay whatsoever price thou shalt determine. Hiram's reply indicates a bit that he sees this alliance as being of long-term benefit, so he naturally demurs to Solomon as being more powerful. He says, quote, It is fit to bless God that he hath committed thy father's government to thee, who art a wise man and endowed with all virtues. As for myself, I rejoice at the condition thou art in, and will be subservient to thee in all that thou sendest to me about. For when by my subjects I have cut down many and large trees of cedar and cypress wood, I will send them to sea, and will order my subjects to make floats of them, and to sail what place soever of thy country thou shalt desire, and leave them there, after which thy subjects may carry them to Jerusalem. But do thou take care to procure us corn for this timber, which we stand in need of, because we inhabit an island. Hiram pays Solomon great lip service, but he also recognizes that Tyre can benefit by having friends on the inland border. Likewise, Solomon must feel that friends with access to the sea would be worth having from his perspective. So the alliance materializes quite neatly. Josephus says that the Hebrews sent large quantities of wheat and wine up to Tyre every year, and that the friendship between Hiram and Solomon hereby increased more and more, and they swore to continue it forever. Nothing lasts forever, as they say, but this particular alliance seems to have continued strong for another few decades, at least. Josephus goes on to tell how Solomon gifted a few entire cities or settlements to Hiram in northern Israel, but it appears that Solomon may have described these settlements a bit too generously. Apparently, when Hiram finally laid eyes on his gift cities, he found them displeasing enough to return them to Solomon with word that he didn't like them. Supposedly, the area from that point forward came to be called Kabul, which in the Phoenician language meant what does not please, 
And no, I don't think it's the same Kabul that's the city in Afghanistan today. Despite Hiram's no thank you to Solomon, the alliance remained strong because of two highly desirable commodities that the Tyrians had to offer. Their trademark dye from the Murex shell, prized by royalty and wealth throughout the Near East and Western Asia, but also the sturdy cedar wood of the Levantine Mountains, useful for building and for ship construction. Thus, as historian David Abulafia tells us in his tome about the Mediterranean Sea, Tyre and its neighbors didn't flourish simply as intermediaries between Asia and Europe. They had something of their own to offer. In my personal view, we could add here a third thing to the Phoenician offering menu, something that's more of a service than it is a good but something that's just as synonymous with the Phoenician legacy as were the first two items. That service was the Phoenician skill as navigators, sailors, shipbuilders, and merchants. And it's a skill or service that also found a place in the Tyre-Jerusalem alliance. Josephus again, speaking of Solomon, said that even after Hiram's decline of the gift cities, they continued to work together. He wrote, quote, Moreover, the king built many ships in the Egyptian bay of the Red Sea, in a certain place called Ezion Geber. It is now called Berenike, and is not far from the city Eloth. This country belonged formerly to the Jews and became useful for shipping from the donations of Hiram, king of Tyre. For he sent a sufficient number of men thither for pilots, and such as were skillful in navigation, to whom Solomon gave this command, that they should go along with his own stewards to the land that was called of old Ophir, but now the Aurea Kersenesis, which belongs to India, to fetch him gold. And when they had gathered four hundred talents together, they returned to the king again. Whether or not the Jews ever actually held territory in the south of Egypt on the Red Sea, as Josephus claims that they did, it's not too far-fetched to think that they at least took advantage of the Phoenician navigation skills to open up trade routes there. The land called Ophir, where Josephus and other Jewish tradition holds that Solomon obtained his gold and silver and other precious items, Ophir is comparable to the land of Punt in Egyptian tradition. It seems to have been an actual place where the Jews obtained gold, but today no one knows where that place would have been. As with Punt, many theories exist. Some say it was a wealthy land on the African coast of the Red Sea, perhaps modern-day Zimbabwe or Ethiopia. Others take Josephus at his word and conclude that it was somewhere nearer to India and the east. H. Ryder Haggard places it in South Africa as the site of King Solomon's Mines in the novel of that same name, which, by the way, is a novel that's definitely worth reading, even if it's historically untenable. The Alan Quartermain stories were a highlight of my childhood, I have to confess and I think you should at least read that one, even if you don't spend the time to read the others. Ultimately, getting back to the land of Ophir, 
We don't know, and we probably won't ever know. But the underlying revelation that the Phoenicians provided their services as navigators and pilots is an important one. And that example is by far not the only example of them providing their services as navigators to other people. Indeed, as we move forward in history now, pay attention to see just how often Phoenician sailors and navigators were pressed into service by their more powerful neighbors, willingly so or not. Those instances come a bit later in the Phoenician story. Before we get there, we should briefly discuss the other building blocks that were assembled by the Phoenicians, blocks that together allowed them to establish the first trade network that covered the entirety of the Mediterranean Sea. We've seen how their navigational skills were integral, their use of the pole star giving them the ability to sail out of sight of land. That's all nice and well, but without the ships necessary to transport goods around a maritime trade network, navigational skills are a bit useless. Obviously, such abilities and capabilities develop hand-in-hand, so it's no surprise that the Phoenicians managed to upgrade the already well-built ships of their Levantine predecessors. Shipbuilding in the region goes back far before recorded history. We saw from many Egyptian depictions of Syrian merchants how their ships were more along the lines of a traditional ship as we think of it, and unlike the sewn plank ships that were being built down in Egypt. The Uluburun merchant ship wreck is a good example of the Levantine merchant ship as it existed from the time before we call the area's descendants by the term Phoenician. The Phoenicians simply seem to have took this style of ship and made it bigger. And since bitumen was prevalent in the region, just as it was with the Sumerian boaters that you might remember from our very first episode, The Phoenicians had all the natural resources necessary to build large, sturdy, waterproofed, seafaring ships whenever they wanted to, really. We don't have many, almost any, depictions of boats from before the 8th century BCE when it comes to the Phoenician cities, but we can get a glimpse of the reputation that the Phoenician ships carried. The Greek word for the merchant ships of Tyre and Sidon was the word gauloi, and seeing as how this word also later came to assume a meaning that was related to the shape of a bathtub, then we can see that the early Phoenician merchant ships must have been deep-hulled and steep-sided, much like a bathtub. Which, by the way, is the perfect shape to thereby maximize storage capacity which is, in turn, a must-have quality for a merchant ship. It would seem that the Phoenician merchant ships were a spin on the Mycenaean galley idea as well. There isn't any one perfect example to demonstrate all of these qualities in unison, but piecing together the Bronze Age evidence from Syrian merchant ships and the later evidence of Phoenician ships from the 8th century and later, We know that the large Gauloi ships were also fast, thanks to their inclusion of oarmen who would have been useful, if not necessary, in navigating the rocky, 
windswept coasts of the Aegean in particular. Ultimately, the Phoenician merchant ships were quite similar to the Mycenaean galleys that developed in the late Bronze Age, albeit with those deeper bathtub-shaped hulls. The difference is that where the Mycenaeans were decimated during the collapse, the Phoenicians remained virtually unharmed, able to continue the maritime innovation and expansion of their fledgling trade network. The ultimate result of that trade network has come to be the Phoenician hallmark in the historical tradition. According to legend, they had established colonies as far west as Cadiz, Spain, by as early as 1100 BCE. Hard archaeology shows that this is much too early a date for the expansion so far west. However, by the early 9th century BCE, the Phoenician cities had established colonies around the Near East, something which isn't altogether surprising. The Mycenaeans had done the same during their heyday, and with the access to ships and their navigational prowess, the Phoenicians were simply taking up the mantle of Near East trading leaders. Phoenician outposts in Asia Minor are evident, as are settlements on Cyprus and along the Levantine coast, even outside the main concentration of major cities like Tyre, Sidon, and Byblos. The establishment rate of these outposts appears to have undergone serious acceleration at about the same time that Tyre rose to prominence, which was during and directly following the reign of Hiram, so around 950 BCE and thereafter. I should clarify that these trade outposts didn't yet rise to a level deserving of the name colony. Initially, the Phoenician practice was to simply set up an enclave within the city or territory that was a trade destination for Phoenician goods. Richard Miles cites the archaeological work of modern times to explain that these enclaves eventually evolved into more official relationships. He points to the existence of Phoenician perfume bottling factories on Crete, Rhodes, and Kos all three Greek islands. With the rise of Tyre, the Tyrian outlook began to change, the rest of the Phoenician cities following suit in their good time. We've seen on several occasions in our look at the Bronze Age how the island of Cyprus was a trade center for proto-Phoenician merchants from the Levant, as well as for the Mycenaeans, maybe even for the Egyptians. It follows quite logically, then, that the first proper Phoenician colony would have popped up on the island. Cyprus was a rich source of copper, and that metal seems to have been the draw for the Tyrian colonists. The city on the southern coast of Cyprus was called Kition, and had originally been established by the Mycenaeans, who were also drawn to the area by the copper deposits. We know what befell the Mycenaeans, though, and the city saw a period of sharp decline and near disuse for several centuries. With the rise of Tyre and the Phoenicians, however, the site became a colony, settled not to serve as a trading enclave within an already established center, 
but instead to serve as a holy Tyrian settlement. Copper was the main goal for them at Ketion, but we will see next time how their far-flung colonization was undertaken for many and various reasons. Getting back to the start of their colonization, though, the thing that allows us to call Ketion a true colony is that it was treated as sovereign territory of the mother city, Tyre. A governor in the city reported directly to Hiram, and the arrangement continued down to the next king and governor. A remnant of inhabitants had remained in Ketion and had been subjected to Tyrian rule. So it's also interesting to note the fact that when they attempted to rise up against Tyrian rule, Hiram sent in troops to quell the rebellion. This, I would say, is more good evidence that the city was seen by Tyre as a colony to be held onto and ruled, rather than as a mere trading outpost in the territory of another sovereign. There were elements of religious influence at play in Kition and in the other Tyrian colonies to follow, and although such elements interest me personally, I'll simply point you to the book by Richard Miles, Carthage Must Be Destroyed, and if you're curious, you can find out a lot more about all of this in that book. This is the Maritime History Podcast still, and I have found myself wandering a bit far afield in my research from time to time, please do forgive me. So I'll try to keep it on track here today at least. This discussion of Kition and the first true Tyrian colony, the first in a very long line, as we'll discuss next time, but this topic brings us to a good closing point today. You see, it's certainly possible that as the Iron Age world developed, the Phoenicians may have begun a colony-building enterprise eventually, regardless of the geopolitical issues at play. However, as we look back on the major factors that were at play during that time period and in that area of the globe, a major factor that pushed the Phoenicians to colonize seems to have been outside pressure from powerful empires east of the Phoenician coast. Between the reign of Hiram, which ended around 950 BCE, Tyre and the other Phoenician cities had been busy about the merchanting business in the near eastern portion of the Mediterranean. They'd begun establishing colonies like Kitian, but none further west than Anatolia, which is again not altogether surprising. They already had stable trade networks in place between themselves and Egypt, along with Cyprus, some of the coastal cities in Anatolia, probably a few areas of the Aegean as well. Last episode's report of Wenamun showed us that Egyptian trade had dipped in the years between 1100 and 950 BCE, but during and after Hiram's reign, this appears to have reversed course. We will make our last stop today in Tyre, in the first decade of the 9th century BCE, the year 880, give or take. The king of Tyre is Ithobaal I, and though his name itself doesn't ring many bells in our modern minds, his daughter's name tends to ring a lot of bells. 
Isobaal's daughter was named Jezebel, and the Tyre-Israel alliance was still holding together over a century after it had began, as evidenced by the Old Testament stories of the evil Queen Jezebel and her marriage to Israel's King Ahab. Ithobaal and the resurgence of Egypt here is important because it was during Ithobaal's reign that the second of Tyre's two famous harbors was supposedly built. Tyre was famous for the man-made harbors that allowed it to become a trade power, one harbor to the north and one to the south of the city itself on its island perch. The northern harbor had helped Tyre eclipse Byblos and Sidon as the preeminent Phoenician city, but the construction of this second harbor would up the Tyrian game, so to speak, and it would play a role in their colonization efforts. The harbor came to be called the Egyptian Harbor, sitting on Tyre's southern side, facing the land of the pharaohs. You see, Egypt had regained a semblance of its former strength, strength that in the eyes of the Phoenician merchants meant a new trade partner. Tyre minted a new alliance with Egypt around about 875 BCE, thereby re-establishing large-scale trade with Egypt. Thus, the culmination of Egypt's rise back to power was, for the Phoenicians, simply a good opportunity to expand their trade. The only problem was that Egypt wasn't the only old power to return to form during the reign of Ithobaal. The old and middle Assyrian empires weren't shy of warfare by any means, but the Neo-Assyrian empire that arose following the Bronze Age collapse was infamously reputed to be an empire of cruelty, even barbarism in the eyes of some historians. Definitely go listen to the most recent episodes of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History to get a comprehensive feel for the standard operating procedure of the Near Eastern Empire during this period. The bottom line for us is that, as Braudel wrote, in order to survive, Assyria had to stamp out those it conquered, crippling them with taxes or deporting entire populations, bringing them into its own territory, where in the days to come, their large numbers would make them a permanent threat. Entire histories have been written to contain the story of the Neo-Assyrian expansion and conquest of the Near East. But as that all concerns Phoenicia, we can say that by the reign of Ithobaal, Assyria's war machine had reached the Levantine coast. The Assyrian king Ashurnasirpal II led a conquest of Syria and the Phoenician cities between the years of 883 and 859 BCE. He was smart about how he handled the Phoenician cities. We have to give him credit there. As Braudel said above, Assyria tended to annex the cities that it conquered, absorbing both the people and the resources into the empire. But when the Assyrian king hit the coast of the Mediterranean, he recognized that it would be far more beneficial for him to utilize these adept sailors with their already humming mercantile machine than it would be to dismantle that machine 
into comparatively useless parts. Rather, an inscription from Asher Nasserpal tells us that he merely received tribute from the Phoenicians, and then let them remain fairly independent, assuming that the tribute continued into the future, of course. That inscription said, quote, The tribute of the seacoast, from the inhabitants of Tyre, Sidon, Byblos, Mahalata, Kaiza, Emru, and Arvad, which is an island in the sea, consisting of gold, silver, tin, copper, copper containers, linen garments with multicolored trimmings, large and small monkeys, ebony, boxwood, ivory from walrus tusk, a product of the sea. This, their tribute, I received, and they embraced my feet. From all historical appearances, it seems that the Phoenician cities were accepting of the tribute arrangement. While Syrian cities, along with Ahab of Israel, rebelled and met Ashurnasirpal's son, Shalmaneser III, in battle at the Battle of Karkar in 853, there's no mention of Phoenician presence in the rebellious coalition. In fact, it seems that the Phoenicians continued paying tribute to the Assyrian king. The magnificently ornate palace gates of Shalmaneser III depict a contingent of Phoenician ships bringing their tribute to the king. These ships appear to be vessels that would have been used near the coastline, not necessarily seafaring vessels, but they do have horse figureheads on each end of the ship, which is a common trait among the Phoenician ships that we know of. So, with the image of Phoenician ships bringing their tribute to the Assyrian king in 850 BCE, we'll close this episode today. In this image, we get a glimpse of the motivation behind the Phoenician push west, the colonization that we'll explore in our next episode. While they certainly were the enterprising merchants of the day, Assyria demanded of them tribute of ever-increasing quantities, while simultaneously conquering the cities and resources in the land around Phoenicia. So what do you do when your bullying neighbor seizes a major source of your commodities and then demands that you keep up on your tribute payments anyway? Well, you do what the Phoenicians did, and you look for new sources of wealth. Thanks for tuning in today, everyone. And I would like to thank the following listeners for their recent iTunes reviews. Two international reviews since our last episode. International for me, anyways. So thank you to Big Slash Angry Bird from Canada and to Daniel C. of Hungary for those kind reviews. I'm always amazed by the global reach of media today, and it's very humbling for me to be able to be a part of it and to receive such kind words from such encouraging listeners. I do owe also another huge thank you each to both Mitchell and Justin for becoming our latest supporting members. I'm constantly adding new episode transcripts for our members, that is when I'm not working on the main episodes, and I hope to be up to date on those before too much longer. I'll be releasing another member episode soon as well, 
where we are going to delve more deeply into the myth of Tyre's founding, the geography of the island city and the area around it, as well as some more info on the harbors that helped Tyre become a major maritime power. Basically then, check out our membership options if you'd like to support the podcast and gain access to those transcripts and bonus episodes. Thanks again, Mitchell and Justin, for your support. And if you can't afford membership, but you want to support anyways, iTunes reviews, or just telling a friend about the podcast are great ways to help keep us going. I seem to have run out of things to say for now, so I'll put a plug in it and allow you to go on your way today. Check out the Facebook page for updates on when our next episode will be out. And until then, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast.